Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Carrie Clack, columnist, editorial board. Nancy Prayer Johnson, associate editorial board editor. A few weeks ago, we had the Democratic nominee for U.S. District 23, John Lira. And today we're really uh, fortunate to have the incumbent uh, in District 23. Uh, he... Uh, served 20 years in the U.S. Navy before running for office and won his first time out in 2020. He's got a huge district that it, that covers uh, San Antonio to El Paso. And I know both in 2020 and this year, he's like all over the district. And we appreciate him taking time out to be with us. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, thank you so much. Hey, Gilbert. Thank you, uh, Carrie and Nancy. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm excited for it. I want to give you something before we get started. Okay. You know, today's uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, and <laughs> I think you've just done an amazing job thank as you. a journalist, and you don't see enough journalists. Look, you're always fair. Never, It's thank not you. always, we don't always agree on sure. things, but you're always fair. You do your due diligence, and I really appreciate reading your stuff. To me, in my opinion, there's not enough Hispanic, in particular, Mexican-American journalists out there. So in the Navy or in the military in general, coins are a big deal. This is uh, this is my coin. It's real serious, man. So I want to give that to All you. All right. Well, All thank right. you so much. I really yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. Very so, nice. Very nice well, I, that that and two dollars will get you a, a, a bean and cheese <laughs> taco at, or monster drink. <laughs> or monster drink. This is beautiful. Do you it's do really fiesta medals at the Because yeah, you would have the. A buddy of mine did that. He he's real serious well. about it. He's it's like, beautiful. I got gotcha. you. It's good. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I would ask you um, your thoughts on Friday's gubernatorial debate, but I, I saw your tweets <laughs> that night, and so I know for a fact that you were watching the UTSA <laughs> Roadrunners <laughs> that night. So I'm not going to bother you with that one. I know I know your opinion of the game. It was a great yeah. game. Um, but you know, one of the things that came up in the debate, it's a big issue in Texas and certainly in your district, you got hundreds of miles of border territory is this issue of immigration. And there's no doubt that, uh, our system is broken. I think people on both sides of the aisle agree with that. And we've got major challenges in the border because we've seen a huge surge of, of migrants coming to the border. And it's put a lot of stress on, on communities that have had to absorb, um, the migrants who've been coming in. But I wanted to kind of get to the issue uh, because this is a, a term that, that that gets used a lot, the issue of open borders. Because sure. I know that's one that you've used and, and sure. other Republicans. And, and in looking at the situation, again, I know we got a lot of problems. The During the Biden administration, I mean, I don't, to my knowledge, we haven't seen uh, slashing of personnel on the border. We haven't seen uh, the closing of, of uh, checkpoints near the border. We, we ha He hasn't torn down any fencing or barricades near, uh, near the border. Um, so my sense is that when people talk about open borders, the, the crux of the issue is really the so-called catch and release policy where you have migrants coming in. Sure. Um, uh, many of them are asylum seekers uh, coming in, they're processed, and then they're released until their immigration court hearing comes up. Is that the issue? When you, when you talk about that and use the term, is that really the big deal for you? You know, it's such a complicated issue. And it's one that everybody is responsible for fixing. And it seems as if nobody wants to fix it. Why? Because it's politically lucrative to both sides. Everybody demonizes one another. They fundraise off of it. And nobody ultimately wants to roll up their sleeves and go to work. To me, when I look at the, the immigration issue, the number one uh, problem is the fact that there isn't a legal route for people to come over to the United States and work. 
is what I look at. And because there is no legal route, cartels and these other organizations exploit the illegal route. The frustration I've had with the Biden administration is they don't want to even sit down and have a conversation. And a lot, look, the Biden administration gets a lot of flack, so I'll kind of lay off them a little bit. I'm even more frustrated with House Democrats because at the end of the day, the House is an equal branch of government and the House is where this should, should start and should have this conversation. But because it's a political lightning bolt, it's so much easier for the other side to just demonize one another than sit down. I, I will say, you know, I did have some breakthrough. You know, uh, I was getting real frustrated with it. I spent a lot of time uh, dealing with this problem set. And I started thinking to go, hey, look, um, I'm only one. I'm only one of 435 members of Congress. Woo, woo, woo. And I'm like, wait, stop. Like you're a member of Congress. You have a seat at the table. And while, you know, I'm, I'm a first term member, I, I don't determine hearings or I don't determine, you know, some of the legislation that comes forth because I'm in the minority. I'm still a member of Congress. And one of the things that we did was we put together it was it was actually eight members of Congress and at the at the White House. I mean, not the White House, at the at the at Congress. And we had four Democrats and four Republicans. I brought the chief of Border Patrol in a room and there was no cameras. There were no really even not even any staff. And we just had a frank discussion. And so that didn't get a lot of press because that's not sexy. But to me, I go, that's what I believe needs to happen. I've jumped up and down and go, I'll have a conversation with anyone. I don't care what their politics are. We need to start by having a conversation. So and I, I know for a fact that when you came to Congress, I mean, comprehensive Im comprehensive immigration reform is a bit, has been a big priority for you. Yes. I know it still is. Yes. What would it look like? What, what would your version of comprehensive immigration reform look like? You've talked about work visas. I know that's big for you. I mean, to me, honestly, the, this, the way the border is at right now, it is complete chaos. It's so, it's really sad. It's frustrating. If you live along the border, your life is turned upside down. Doesn't matter your politics, your life is turned upside down. I mean, look, just in Uvalde a few days ago, there was a high-speed chase that ended where the memorial is at. I mean, our kids are going into lockdown. A lot of people don't realize before the Uvalde shooting happened, they were, the, the school was in lockdown 48 times. So you wonder why the response was lackadaisical. So to me, uh, immigration reform starts with border security. Well, what does that mean, right? Those are like kind of buzzwords. What does that mean? The number one thing is enforcement, just enforcement of the law. Meaning if you do not qualify for asylum, you're returned back to your country of origin. I, and I, I think back to, you know, Haitians under a bridge a year ago, there was about 18,000 Haitians under a bridge. And then all of a sudden that went away. Why did that go away? Reality is 16,000 of those Haitians were released, given a court date to appear later. A lot of them went to Miami and Southern Florida. 2,000 of those Haitians were returned back to Haiti. A lot of those didn't even, they weren't even from Haiti. Like they had moved elsewhere. So you, you would like when they're, when they, when they come to the border, if the determination is made immediately, you don't meet any of the qualifications for asylum to just fly them back to their country of origin, whether it's Venezuela or Peru, wherever it might be. Exactly. I've asked for these processing centers, uh, Border Patrol, I'm very close to Border Patrol. Border Patrol would ask me for one thing. They're like, Tony, get us out of these processing centers, get us back into the field. We want to be catching bad guys, not processing people. And the number one way to do that is if you create processing centers, but you have to have an immigration uh 
judges at the border there. They're called PACER program. This is not a new concept. So you come over, you get your case heard in days, not years. And if you don't get if you don't qualify, you return back. Now, that's the way to, to tackle the illegal portion of it. But I'm telling you, the root cause of it is there isn't a legal function because the bottom line is we have vacancies in every single industry, every single industry in America. It's not just agriculture and construction. Every, you go to the bank, they're like, we'll hire you. I mean, you go anywhere, they'll hire you. So if there was a route, I'd love to see kind of two, right? Stop any illegal immigration. That way, if you don't qualify, you get returned back. But be, create a road where people can come over legally, not getting smuggled in a car or in a train or all these horrific incidents where they could fly and come over and work. You got to remove the politics in it as far as like voting and whatnot. I, I wanted to ask you about this. This is something that's been a little bit of a, a political frustration for me. And um and so, and it's not necessarily something that, that, that you should be saddled with, but I, I just want to kind of get your take on this. Um, and I'm going to use an example from Senator Cornyn. And, and it's, he, he's, this is just one example because others have done this. But in early September, we had uh, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced they had two major uh, fentanyl busts. Sure. And this was at the Nogales, Arizona port mm-hmm. of entry. And I think one of them was like 35,000 fentanyl pills that they seized. Another was like 14,000 fentanyl pills. And Senator Cornyn, uh, his, he, uh, retweeted it. And then he had a hashtag Biden border crisis. And Governor Abbott has done similar things. And uh, again, I know the problems we got on the border. And I know that the problem we have with fentanyl coming in. But this was a story of fentanyl being seized, which to me, that's what we should be wanting. And it seems that even when that happens, the response sometimes is See, see the problem we've got there when, when it's actually a, a, those are, are individual success stories. It, I, I'm just curious what, what you make of that. Yeah, I, I think when people see a seizure or when you see someone get apprehended, the first it depends on it depends on how you look at a problem. Right. Everybody looks at the world through different lenses. Sure. And I think one of the one of the lenses that a lot of conservatives view it is to go, if we are catching X, what aren't we catching? That is the way they see that. So no matter how much you catch, you're going, well, how much did we not catch? Because there's this perception that there's not enough, not perception, it really is reality in a lot of cases. There's not enough law enforcement mechanisms to stop some of the bad actors and bad things from coming and over. And this kind of gets to a, a question, since you've spent so much time on the border, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. Because I always think the U.S. has control over you know, what, what happens at the border. Sure. It seems to me that there's not much control that we can have over the manufacturing of fentanyl in Mexico and the attempts to smuggle. It's more about being able to stop it. Is there anything that you see, and, and this could be maybe a diplomatic yeah. uh, area, what could the U.S. do to, to deal with it earlier in the process? These are the frustrations that I have with the administration and House Democrats is I'm jumping up and down and going, hey, look, I don't, I, I'm not trying to use this as a political football. These are my people that lives are at stake. These are my people that their kids are, are having to deal with this different issue. So one of the things is that I've been pushing for is technology at the border. You know, a couple months ago, several months back, we had 53 migrants that were found dead in a, in a trailer truck here in San Antonio. Well, guess what? That could have been prevented if, it, if at the border there was technology to scan these trucks when they come through. It already exists. It's in that case. So I'm asking for, I'm not asking for some of these other things that I know are politically dead on arrival. I'm asking for more technology to stop this from happening. And yet there is nothing, there's no one on the other side to have that conversation. Now you brought up diplomacy. This is so critical. And you know what? Like Biden gets, the president gets a lot of flack. Mayorkas gets a lot of flack. But to me, the person 
probably most responsible for encouraging this is uh, Secretary Blinken, because it is the Secretary of State's job to go to these foreign countries and create relationships, basically create treaties, create different relationships, whether that's Mexico or Central America. One of the things that was frustrating to me, I took a bipartisan CODEL to to the Northern Triangle maybe two months ago, and uh, uh, no members of Congress had been to the Northern Triangle in three years completely unsatisfactory. And we met with the president of Guatemala. We met with a uh, uh, foreign minister of uh, El Salvador and uh, essentially the the uh, speaker of the house in, uh, in Honduras. And they're going, basically, I'm asking, hey, what would it take in order to this to end? And all it would take is a phone call. What I'm getting at is instead of Blinken focusing on Ukraine and Taiwan, I get all these things. They're all important things. Why don't we look in our own backyard? This can solve a lot of different issues, but there's no accountability. I look back to Blinken. He really upsets me, mainly because I spent 20 years in the military and there were 13 Americans that were killed in Afghanistan. Look, you, you could you could want to withdraw all day long. And that's the policy decision by the president. Nothing like different than my belief system, but nothing wrong with it. It's how the manner in which they did it, which was reckless. And to me, I see the same thing. The manner in which they're not doing anything. You know, go to Venezuela. Not easy. Your job's not easy. Go to Venezuela and go, hey, check it out. This needs to stop, right? Either you get the carrot or you get the stick. This needs to stop. It's as if they've given up. It's very frustrating. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about Uvalde, uh, which is in your district. And uh, we all know about what happened on May 24th, a mass shooting at Robb Elementary School, horrific tragedy. You were one of the few Republicans who voted for the Safer Communities Act, which uh, I think people who uh, are experts in the field of, of mental health say this was a major breakthrough in mental health funding in this country. The the uh, as far as the addressing gun control and gun reform, the, the, that was more of a the, the changes were more modest in that area. But uh, certainly, it, it, mental health is, which I think is a big issue for you, is uh, that was that was a really important part of this. Um, I'm guessing that you got. I, I know that you got some flack on the Republican side for being willing to work in a bipartisan way. Uh, And you probably got some flack from Democrats saying you should have gone farther. Welcome to Texas 23. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) can you talk a little bit about the And I I think the thing too is uh, that I'd like to know, and I I think I have some idea from having talked to you a little bit about this issue, but are there any other steps that you would be willing to take on the issue of gun reform? As you assess the issue, is, is this about as far as you're willing to go? So you got some notes. I got some notes. When you, <laughs> when you staff yourself, this is what your notes look like. Uh, I got Matthew McConaughey, Jill, Jill Biden, Elon Musk, and the Spurs. And I'm going to use this opportunity to weave in Matthew McConaughey. So Uvalde happened. I grew up, I spent, uh, my grandparents raised me and we lived in Camp Wood, small little town outside of Uvalde, about 38 miles from Uvalde. So when Uvalde happened, it's very personal to me. You know, to me, even to this day, Uvalde is the big town for me. It's like, you're go- we're going to the to the movies. Is Every time I see Uvalde, every time I drive into Uvalde, I'm going as a kid, we're going to the movies today. Um, so when it was very personal to me. And you know, when it happened, it was, it was horrific. You're going through all these emotions. But one of the moments that I think is very important because it talks about the, you, bringing it back to your the, the legislation, the Safer's Community Act. Matthew McConaughey reaches out to me and he goes, hey, Tony, word on the street is you're the guy to talk to if I want to go to Uvalde. I'm like, yeah, man, you know, what, what do you what, what's on your mind? I never met him before, never really had a conversation with him. And, you know, like, what's on your mind? You know, we kind of walked through what he envisioned the day was and we put that day together. Right. And, and it was a lot of it reminded me a lot of when when the president reached out 
Same deal. The president, they reached out like maybe day one after after the incident uh, to visit. And I go, you know, of course I will host you. Uh, of course, you're the president of the United States. Of course I will host you. But there's some things that I would recommend. Like, don't this is this is rural Texas. I mean, don't come in here with some of the political stuff. Just listen, be there. And, and he did a lot of that. So when Matthew came, you know, you, you remember he went to the White House uh, a week after and he told all those stories. Well, those stories were the day was was the time we spent together. OK, we spent that we spent together. And what this is hilarious is, um, you know, a lot of these meetings, uh, I, I I purposely am not in a suit and tie with this. I'm the congressman. I'm better than you. That's not my image. That's not what I want to portray. It's always been I'm here to represent the people. And so, you know, some of these meetings that, that were put together were because of Matthew. Right. They, they wanted to the family wanted to be there with Matthew. He's a star and, and people people grieve in different ways. You know, they need different things. And so one of the things, one one incident or one, one of the, the meetings we're in there with one of the families, Matthew and, and Camille was in there and they're kind of going over everything. I'm just quiet. I'm not saying a word. They're going over everything. And then I, and then I interject at the end. I go, Hey, I'm also, I'm, I'm, I represent this district. If there's anything I can do to help, I'm happy to help. One thing that came up, there's a lot of people, there's all these things that, that just haven't made it out. One of the, one of the fathers was a Mexican national and he only had a visa until Saturday. And they were actually, they were trying to work the, the funeral arrangements and they're going, Oh, it has to be Saturday because dad has to be back by then. And I go, well, I'm, you know, I can help you with a visa if you need to help with a visa. And, you know, you don't have to make it. It was like a Thursday and they're trying to arrange everything two days later. And so I say that to go, we were able to help. We were help that father extend his visa for six months out. Like just, and I, I kept getting calls afterwards, just these little things. And so Matthew kind of realized like, okay, there's things that he can do. There's things that I can do. And one of the other ones was um, when we were sitting down with one of the families and they're showing us all this artwork. I mean, they're so proud of their daughter, you know, um, I'm so proud of her, their, their daughter and they're showing all the artwork. And I'm just sitting there probably at an hour. I mean, I'm just standing there. I don't say a word. Okay. It's coming to a close. And I just, I, I reach in, I go, Hey, I'm the representative of this area. I would love to display your daughter's artwork in the Capitol. And they just all start bawling and they just go, this is what that family needed. In one case, a family needed a visa for their father. In another case, they needed their artwork to display. Like everyone just needed different things. But the only way you know that is if you show up. So that Matthew and I were able to kind of connect that way. He goes on and helps push, kind of get the momentum going on it. I was very proud of this legislation. I mean, I've got six kids. A couple of my kids are in, in elementary school. I mean, we owe it. We as lawmakers owe it to the public to make sure our kids are safe. And yeah, I took a bunch of crap for it. I mean, it's part of the gig. You better have thick skin if you're going to run for public office, certainly in this district. Uh, to me, it was it, it didn't infringe on the Second Amendment, which I think is important or the Constitution. Very important. It, honestly, it was it was it was something we hadn't done. We lawmakers hadn't done anything in 30 years. So I was excited to get that. And then the largest investment in mental health in the nation history. Always talk about it. Every Everyone uses that as a buzzword. But here's the, the, the real key is this, Gilbert, is it's passed into law, signed into law. How do you bring those dollars back to the school? Because until that happens, it's all BS. It's not real. So one of the things that we've been doing is we've been going around the district and honestly, just throughout visiting with superintendents to go, there's all this money out there. How do we bring it back today? I'll be at Randolph talking with their ISD. I'll be at, I'll be at um, Fort Sam Houston talking to their ISD a couple of weeks ago as I was Harlandale. Like we just been going around to go, there is money out there to help them because the, the, the grant process is built to where the 
no one knows how to reach it. It's like this, like might as well be in Chinese. Well, as you know, you know, so many of these shootings, uh, mass shootings that we've seen in this country in recent years, they've been with assault style weapons. Um, many of them have been perpetrated by very young shooters. In this case, it was eight, an 18 year old. And so obviously I, I'm, you've heard the arguments on the issue of whether we should raise, um, you know, the, restrict purchases of those types of weapons to, yeah. to people 21 and over rather than 18 and over. Uh, what's your thought? My take has been, has been this, and, and it's my style kind of throughout is everything should be on the table. Everything should be on the table. And I'd love to have the conversation. I'd love to sit down in a room and go, how do we protect our kids? Like have that conversation instead of it being so political, which you often see often to go, I'm trying to get you to vote no so I can come back and have something politically over your head instead of trying to get to yes. The hardest vote I've taken in Congress is yes. It's easy to say no. So easy to say no. But uh, I'd like to see more of that conversation. And sadly, there hasn't been any. Well, I'd say there's been there's been some. There needs to be more. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, uh, you know, her and I have been uh, conversating on some things. I mean, our politics can't be any different. Uh, but she has taken an interest in wanting to solve some of these things. She's respected within her caucus and try to sit down some of the things. That's the way I view it is to go, let's sit down and do it. The other thing that I looked at too, and it's, it's the way I legislate is what is real and what is BS. A lot of things in politics is BS. You just want to claim that you're trying to do something and blame the other side for stopping you to do that. And I get that, but I look at it and I go, what can actually get signed into law? Because until it's signed into law, doesn't exist, right? So uh, I was really, I was really uh, excited. I passed a, a bill, the Blackwell School Bill uh, this year. And in, in the 117th Congress, there's been 86, no, 96 bills that have signed into law in the House, 96 out of 11,000. Mine is one of those bills. Uh, 25 House Republicans have done that. So I look at it and I go, that's the style I want to have. Instead of throwing everything against a wall, go, what, like, you got to roll up your sleeves and go, what can we get over the finish line? So it's, so it's a matter of being, being pragmatic and, and, and making change in, in incremental ways. Do you think there is a way? Uh, I mean, and, and for, you know, for some, it seems like it shouldn't be take so many steps, but do you think there is a way that we can get to a point where we do raise, we lower the, you know, raise the age limit from 18 to 21 for AR-15s? Uh, Carrie, it's happened before. I mean, I wouldn't think it would, it, it's impossible to not have it happen again. Um, the other thing I look at too is I don't want to just be someone that does something to do it and say, look at me, look, look what I did. I mean, does it genuinely help? And the prime example is this bill. It, you know, we passed the Safer's Community Act that one adds, uh, adds, uh, background checks for minors. I think that's very important. Would have, would have prevented the shooting in this case, but the other is the mental health. So instead of just giving you a high five and go, we passed the largest bill in our nation's history. How do you bring those dollars back? So, I mean, what I'm getting at is there's so many different things that you can do. I mean, there is there's a lot of things. And you and, a, and as a member of Congress, you have limited political capital and it goes, what are you going to spend this capital on? Sadly, a lot of people spend their capital on the rhetoric part of it to get TV and, and money and all these different things. I get that. I get plenty of TV. I got plenty of rhetoric that I throw out there just the same. But I also want to be somebody that can roll up their sleeves and go, how do we work this through the finish line? But it's starts with having a conversation. I mean, we got to start talking with one another. Even if we're, we start way over here, 
like come in the room. I, I, you know, I was a little jealous, honestly, that the senators were able to do that, you know, and I was I was I was grateful that Senator Cornyn kept me informed every step of the way, because you got to think about this, Gil, is imagine if I wouldn't have signed on that bill. How would Senator Cornyn have the political capital to go? Even the member of Congress in that district didn't agree to this. It all comes it all comes unraveled very fast. So we all took a risk on it. Very proud that we were able to get it over the finish line. I'm not so sure what was passed would have prevented Salvador Ramos from doing what he did. I mean, when he turned 18, he went and legally purchased the, um, the AR style weapons and the ammunition. Um, you know, he followed the law. He was within it. I don't think there was anything in his background to that would have raised the alarm, you know, that would have kept him from doing it. And that's my big question is what's keeping you from siding with the families? Because, I mean, there's no question that what the families in Uvalde want. I've spent a lot of time in Uvalde sure. um, is to raise that age to 21. Um, and that would definitely make the case for trying to keep another Salvador Ramos, at least the kid out there with obvious mental problems. Right. Sure. And obvious history. Um to, you know, when he turns 18, not to go to the store and purchase the, these weapons, um, which I consider weapons of war, um, and going and, and committing this, right, and and killing so many people. So, I mean, that's my big question. It is, you know, fodder for politics. But to me, that would send a huge message, you going, siding with those families who want this more. I mean, I haven't heard them ask for anything else. That's what they're asking for. Uh, you see the commercials that they put out over the weekend for Beto, um, and they are demanding that change. Yeah, th there's there's no doubt in my mind that the Safer's Community Act would have prevented the shooting the shooting in Uvalde. Uh, the shooter had extensive mental health issues, and if that would have been if they would if that would have been law, it would have been found out during that time. And you know the people that are that sold the firearms, they go, of course we don't want to sell people to people that are mentally unstable. So I think there needs to be more of that. Uh, the other part of it too is you know right after right after the shooting. Um, right after Uvalde occurred, the first thing I did was reach out to these families and just connect with them and, and not in a manner that was public either. Very private because I mean, a lot of these, I mean, they're just their worlds have been turned upside down. So one of the families, I mean, this had to be two days afterwards. I'm sitting, I won't say any names. I'm sitting in the living room of one of these families. And uh, a lot of these, a lot of these families are blended families. You know, their grandparents are raising them or an uncle or they have a stepfather. They're just, they're like real American families. And so I'm sitting with one of the fathers and he just had his daughter that was killed. And he goes, Tony, make sure they don't take my guns away. Okay. <laughs> okay. This is a father just had this happen. You know, I just lost my daughter. Make sure they don't take our guns away. Like, okay. I wasn't expecting that. It wasn't like a setup. Like we only going to meet. I'm just trying to meet with families and do listening. And then you have another family. Like everyone is just processing. Uh, some families came and visited me in DC and you know, they were very vocal on what they wanted. And, and what I told them, too, was and, and a lot of times, believe it or not, politicians will lie to you. They'll bullshit you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Right. And, and they'll tell one group one thing and another group the other. Right. Part of what part of who I am has been. 
I don't know who's in the room. I make it intentional not to know who's in the room. So that way I'm not trying to tell you what you want to hear. And so the family's just going, I want this or this. And I go, look, sir, there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do or say that'll ever bring your child back ever right there. Let's start there. Right? He's mad. He's foaming at the mouth. He's mad at me. I'm like, no problem. And I go, and here's the other thing. If anyone tells you that they can pass this assault ban, they're lying to you. Right now, I mean, just look in the House. There were Democrats that voted against the assault ban. So, and, and right now, House Democrats control the House. Democrats control the Senate. Democrats control the presidency. They all they they control all three levers of government. So I get it. It's very easy to point at Republicans and going, "Why aren't you doing this?" But I'm I'm I, a lot of times it goes, it's not feasible to happen. But back to my point, I think everything should be on the table. I think we should look at it and we should go, what do we have to do in order to keep our kids safe? You know, when when the president came down, Jill Biden, Jill, uh, it was great. I mean, I, it was, she was she was amazing. One of the things that she made it a point to was being an educator is to go, how do we make our educators resilient? You look back in this case in Uvalde and it's it, often it's all of these shootings. Everybody saw this guy coming. Nobody woke up and go, oh, I can't believe this happened. It's always a what if, you know. 10 people could have stopped this. So what I'm looking at, I know a lot of people are looking at the end. I get that. I get it. It's a shiny object. It's a way it's, it's very contentious. I'm trying to find things along the way that can move us towards getting safer. I think mental health is part of those. Let's, let's make a bridge from Uvalde to the Spurs and we're working our way back. Do you, do you stand, you had sent out a tweet a few weeks ago, months ago, accusing the Spurs of, of doing nothing to to help the Uvalde families. Do you stay stand by that tweet, by that statement? Then we yeah. can talk about the rest of it. Yeah, uh, I was very I, I've been I've been very frustrated with um how the Spurs have not done enough, I felt, for Uvalde families. Um, I think they're starting to move in the right direction. I'm grateful for it. They're actually going to be practicing um, in in Uvalde uh, this weekend, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, but but I think back to it is is you know here I had you know here we had the the Las Vegas Raiders giving money, and you got H E B Foundation giving large sums of money. Yet all this outpour from all over the country, it, it boggled my mind why the Spurs didn't run to the fire. And one of the things that upset me is, um, you know, I reached out to them very early on because I'd, I'd trashed them on other things, you know, because they, they were going to be moving and whatnot. We, we don't also have the great best relationships. So I go, this is my opportunity to go, hey. So I reached out to them and go, look, Uvalde just, this is like day three afterwards. I was like, Uvalde just happened. Uh, you know, our families are broken and different. And I just saw like the way Matthew, people had light, lit up when they saw Matthew. And I go, man, I bet you they'd light up if we had the Spurs or something like that. I reach out to them and go, you know, uh, I know we have our differences, but you know, it would be amazing if y'all came to Uvalde and did something. And I didn't get a response. I mean, that's some of the things that's been very frustrating. Like, you don't have to always have to agree with me. You don't always have to, but at least take the call. And and so that's been the frustrating part. But 
I am excited. They're coming out this weekend. I am. I'm grateful for them. I say the community needs it. The, the part that a lot of people don't realize, too, is a lot of these kids from Rob are poor, very impoverished kids. And a lot of times their life is has these ceilings that we built around them. And as bad, as terrible as this happened, I see a lot of lives that have now are going to be going in different directions. Um, I say that to go all this love from around the country has just opened up worlds that some of these kids would never have opportunities for. Uh, I'll give you one example. I, I visited Uvalde Elementary uh, the Friday after the week they started. Where the principal's walking me around. And one of the STEM teachers, I walk in there and she's telling me about this and she's really excited, telling me about this out of the other. And I go, hey, what do you, what do you think about, because uh, she's talking about space. And I go, hey, what do you think about Elon Musk? And she just lights up, right? She goes, I love Elon. Like Elon's amazing. I go, what do you think if I got SpaceX to do something with your class? And it was almost as if it was, wasn't even possible. I'm like, I guarantee you we can get Elon to do something. And what I'm getting at is a lot of these kids are going to have opportunities that they never would have had, I think, because of the love from across that has been outpoured to them. Um, so, yeah. Does that does that make you think deeper as a congressman about how these children can get that kind of love and opportunities and attention without having 19 of their breath of their sisters and brothers and two of their teachers killed? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I came from the hood, Carrie. No, I, I mean, uh, I was our family was just rich enough to not be on on uh you know have a uh, free lunch and we were just poor enough to not get any money for lunch i mean that's like the working poor it's the worst yeah. thing i remember you know going to edison and making up a number for lunch and it was like am i going to eat today or not so to your point i mean there's so many kids that just need basic things healthcare education, a safe environment, whether that's at school or at home. I mean, it's it's domestic violence month this month. I mean, a lot of kids, the part of not enough are talking about COVID messed us up. I mean, imagine you're trapped with your abuser and you can't leave. For me, school was my outlet. School was my ticket to getting the hell out of, you know, the life that I had behind me. So to your point, I, I agree a thousand percent, man. I mean, Uvalde brings a lot of attention to it, but guess what? There's kids all over. And I look here in San Antonio and I go, there's a lot of kids, impoverished kids that that don't, you know, that that have food insecurities, you know, that aren't don't get regular health care, you know, that are counting on their 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 annual checkup is through communities and schools, you know, when getting from their eye care or, you know, they, they're, they're, they're not doing well in school because they can't see the board, you know, they can't see the teacher or they have hearing problems. And one of my children had hearing problems and we didn't realize it till months later and just go like, oh, it's, it's hearing. We thought it was all these different things. So to your point, this is where I go. We, I get the politics, man. I get it. I get the politics and everything, but there's so many things that unites us. And to me, you know, there was something that the, the bishop said when when the president came down and we had mass that Sunday and it, it stayed with me. It'll continue to stay with me. He brought up all the children in the church. And I, mean, I used to remember the number, but it was like 50 or 60 children, all these small children come up and he sits them down. And one of the things that he said was the children are going to be the ones that heal us 
because we're going to we're going to want to do for them. So I think if we can focus on children, keeping children safe, keeping children healthy, keeping children productive, giving children job opportunities, making sure the children have the San Antonio Spurs to root for and not the Austin Spurs. If we can do these things, if we can do these things like like how can we just come together, you know, and it starts there. So do I hear you're OK with um, expanding Medicaid? That's a, yeah, that's a state issue. I mean, uh, I'll quickly punt there. Would you, I mean, well, you don't have the power over, but what, <laughs> I mean, what you are your opinions? What's your opinion? Right. Yeah. You know, my take is um, my take is we have to give state rights. I'm a state rights person. And you have to make sure states have the ability to do the things they need to do. What I'm seeing is this. Texas is getting screwed both ways because on the federal government, you got the president basically going, I'm going to hammer anybody that doesn't take Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, you know, I'm going to hammer them and I'm going to use the stick in order to get them over the finish line. OK, got it. Federal government hammering us. We don't get federal government dollars on the state side. The state's going, no, 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 no. You don't get to determine things. I get to determine things. So you got mom and dad not giving you what you need. So the way I look at it is to go, you know, how do you how do we solve some of these issues? I think having the conversation, I mean, getting involved and in, clearly the stick didn't work with Texas. You know, maybe a carrot would work with Texas in that case. I don't know. I mean, uh, healthcare is another topic. But when you're consumed with all these other things, I mean, I'll be honest, when you're consumed with all these other things, it's like, where do you put your attention? Like, where do you healthcare is critical to everything. I don't care how old you are. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care how much money you have. It's critical to everything. And we're not having those conversations. I mean, we're having these other conversations like I, in Congress. It's frustrating. You mentioned uh, not wanting the Spurs to be the Austin Spurs, and you recently uh, uh, submitted legislation which would make it a lot harder for for professional sports franchises to relocate. And you've been pretty vocal about your concerns that the Spurs, their recent request to be able to get uh, some more games outside the AT&T Center, they're going to play a couple of games in Austin this year, Um, they're going to play one game in Mexico, that you're concerned that they could be headed for Austin or, or thinking along those lines. Uh, I, this is something that obviously, you know, we had, we talked to commissioner Justin Rodriguez last week and yeah. I mean, he, he's, he, I got the feeling from him that he has some concerns about it too, but he's, he's been assured by them that this is not where they're going. I mean, what, this is real. I mean, this is a real deal. I mean, what are they going to say? Yes, we're moving. Hmm. I mean, of course, they're going to say, no, we love you. I mean, up until the day, up until you move, right? Up until it happens. So to me, a lot of the, a lot of what I've been vocal about is to be preventive, is to stop things, is to wake everybody up. It, it frustrates me to no end that San Antonio is this sleepy giant. Well, what, what short of, of, of your legislation passing, and yeah. if it does, and that's going to really put some, you know, some restrictions on them. But if, if, if that doesn't happen, what could the city do to try to prevent this from happening? Yeah, look, the city could prevent the, the Spurs from playing in Austin next year. This was a one-year deal. The reality is the Spurs are playing two games in Austin, one game in Mexico. That's three games, okay? The Spurs generate $700 million annually to the city of San Antonio. So us losing three games, look, I'm a huge fan. I love the Spurs. Uh, you know, one of my sons is Emmanuel. Guess who he's named after? You know, Ginobili, right? My favorite basketball player. Uh, but, but here's the deal. This is beyond personal. I mean, this is, this is business and there's nothing personal about business. Business is the Spurs employ thousands of people here in San Antonio. They have, they have a huge impact. Us losing three games 
is costing us $50 million. So I look at it and I go, how do we prevent that? They're going to get this year. And hopefully those games in Austin are terrible. I hope the Spurs play horrible. I hope nobody shows up to the Moody Center. Uh, but the bottom line is this year they, that, because it's in April too. It can really happen. But I mean, the, the bottom line is what can we do? We could, I think, and, and look, I love Justin, Justin Rodriguez. I appreciate him. Uh, you know, I caught wind that this was, this, that the, the Spurs were, were going to be on the docket. It's like five o'clock. I'm, I'm in another state and I'm going, what the hell? You know, tomorrow morning, hey, heads up, Spurs are, you know, are, are going to be on the docket for this two year deal to play four games elsewhere. It's like, what the hell? I literally, I called the judge. He answered. We had a great conversation. I called a couple commissioners. Justin, Justin Rodriguez was one of them. I appreciate the conversation. He still didn't vote for it. But we had a good conversation. He kind of walked through it. But there were people that didn't call. They didn't pick up my phone. They didn't call back, like the mayor, like a couple other county commissioners. And to me, this is where you go, you got to put the politics aside and go, what's in the best interest of our city? And so one of the things I think that the public can do is put enough pressure on the county commissioners to prevent next year, prevent them from re-upping this. You, know, you had your little one-year deal in Austin. You cost us $50 million. You're not doing it again. You say it's not personal, but yet in 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 in, in your in your tweets it, it comes across as personal. You used earlier you were talking about with with uh, Medicaid expansion. You used the analogy of the carrot and the stick, and there's also the story of the you know the bluster of the wind and the persuasion of the sun. And on your Twitter your Twitter feed, it comes across as a lot of bluster where you it's like when Tony's. I mean, I know he's a fan, but man, he's. Like he's almost he's pissed off about this. Also, is it something that goes beyond the the threat of the Spurs leaving? Is there anything else that bothers you? Look, the, the, a lot of people that aren't from here don't realize the Spurs are part of our identity. I mean, you know how many you know how many people are walking around with Spurs neck tattoos? <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot. I mean, those people, those people. Yeah. I mean, this is serious. This is serious. I mean, it is part of our culture and our identity, and I'm fighting to keep that. I mean, San Antonio is a beautiful city. That's part of just who we are. And look, business is business. Don't think for a minute corporate America won't sell you out and go. There's a there's a new billionaire in Austin every single month. You know, Frost Bank used to be the sponsor for the Spurs. You used to see them on the Spurs jersey. Now it's self-financial. Guess where they're out of? Austin. I mean, so like there's all these things that are up. So I'm worried. Have you heard from the franchise at all since you uh, since you introduced your bill? <laughs> yeah. And this is what's interesting. Um, well, I haven't heard from them. I've heard from them. I mean, um, Bobby left me a message on something uh, on something else. But what I've heard from is so. The legislative process, you can have different styles, but mine has always been you introduce the bill, right? You craft it. It literally took us months to build this thing. If you truly want to get something passed, it takes months. You don't just put it on a napkin, throw it. Like it took us months to craft my poor staff. I'm like, where's my Spurs built? They're like, dude, you, are you kidding me? I'm like, where's my Spurs built? So they built this thing out. And so the next thing is now you get, you look for co sponsors, right? And you start kind of whipping your bill and getting people behind it. Well, I thought it's very interesting the Spurs were pushing for people to not get on my bill. And I'm going, wait a second here. If you weren't going to move, then this bill is just hot air. Like, why would you be against this bill if it clearly doesn't involve you? It, 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 you know, but if it does involve you, then this bill would absolutely cause some friction to you. So I look at it. I mean, you know, don't trust my words, trust my actions. And so when I see the Spurs whipping against wanting people to get on this Spurs bill, like why? Yeah. 
Uh, your district has been one of the few swing districts in the state uh, with redistricting. It's a little, looks a little more like a, uh, maybe, I don't know if I, I would say solidly in the Republican column, but it's definitely, uh, it's not a 50-50 district anymore, certainly. Um, and your Democratic opponent, John Lira, it's it's pretty clear, and we could tell from, from the conversation we had on the podcast, that a lot of his, his hope uh, for an upset here is hinging on the presence of an independent candidate, Frank Lopez Jr., who's the the former Val Verde uh, Republican Party chairman, and who's kind of challenging you from the right. And uh, I want to kind of get your thoughts on, uh, you know, how big a factor you think this independent candidate uh, is going to be and whether you think it uh, there's any, is it, does it keep you up at night? You know, um, I look back at kind of who I am, how I was raised, how I got here, if you will. I had to scratch and claw and fight for every inch, every inch, whether that was before the military, during the military. And that's just who I am. I mean, I didn't roll in with an entourage today. Like I, I purposely want to be hands on everything. And when I ran last time, everyone was like, what are you doing, Tony? You know, you're going to lose for all these different reasons. You're going to lose. And every time someone has told me that, I've always said, watch me. And we just went to work and we just rolled up our sleeves. And I wasn't running against Gina. I was running against myself. And we just rolled up our sleeves. We won. We did all that. That hasn't changed. So when I look at the ballot, this isn't about anyone else that's on the ballot. This is about what we are doing, what I'm doing. And I think at the end of the day, it's up to my constituents to say, do we want you to stick around or not? Right. And so I take everything serious. I mean, I'm I'm a cryptologist. Data is my deal. Uh, I'm constantly consuming information and figuring things out. I take nothing for granted. Absolutely nothing for granted. We take everything serious. But I mean, here's here's some facts. You know, one of my opponents hasn't even been to all 29 counties. And that's a problem. Like if you're running to unseed an incumbent and you haven't even been some of these places, that's a problem. The other one is kind of just running on this hate platform. And I, I get that. Like that gets you so far. But people are people get enough hate. People want to see what are you going to do? They want to see action. They want hope. They want people coming together. So I, I look at it. It's not about them. I mean, this is this is about this is about me. But I will tell you, it is nice to not see some of these hit piece ads on there. I remember last cycle, I mean, they were just blanketed with everything. And uh, I went to go get my haircut here uh, right by Edison. And uh, the lady, she only speaks Spanish and she's 100% Democrat. And I come in, she goes, I didn't know you're running for Congress. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm running for Congress. She's like, that's crazy. She goes, I saw you on TV. I saw one of your ads. And I'm, I light up, I smile and I go, wait a second, English or Spanish? She goes, oh, it's in Spanish. I was like, I'm not renting any ads on Spanish. I was like, was it a good one or a bad one? She's like, oh, it was a bad one. <laughs> and, and I was like, so I'm, I'm excited to not see the bad, nasty, because politics is, is brutal, man. One thing that I've never asked you, uh, but I'm kind of curious about is your initial plan was to challenge Lloyd Doggett, Democratic congressman uh, in his district, and because uh, at the time, District 23 was represented by Republican Will Hurd. Uh, and then a few days after you declared that you were going to run, Will Hurd surprised a lot of people by saying he wasn't going to seek another term. And you you pivoted to District 23. Do you ever think about what might have happened if uh, if the original – if Will Hurd had decided to seek another term and you had been running against Lloyd Doggett? I think Lloyd Doggett stays up at night thinking, what if Tony would have ran me? <laughs> You're <laughs> <for> confidence. I'll <laughs> <tell> you <that. laughs> he, he would have been, I would have had to spend a whole lot more time in San Antonio than I, than I have been. Uh, 
I, I look at God has a way, like I, I tell folks all the time, like, uh, don't hold, don't grip so tight to the wheel. Sometimes you got, sometimes you got to let go and just let where you need to be. And, um, that was one of the things I announced, I announced and within six hours, <laughs> six hours, it was like within six hours, 23 opens. And I always wanted to run in 23. I grew up in 23. It fits who I am. Always wanted to run in 23, but I was never, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in challenging incumbents. And, and I thought, you know, uh, Will was doing a good job. Right. So I never, never even imagined that. So I, I ran in 35 for six hours. Literally my phone is just blowing up. Everyone's going, you got to switch. You got to switch. You got to switch. Uh, you got to do this different deal. And, you know, it's it's like God has a plan for everybody. And, and so I think it's important to not grip so tight to it. But yeah. Tony Gonzalez, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, and good luck on the campaign trail. All right. Thanks, Gilbert. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Nancy.